Hello, welcome to episode two of the Chatting Ball podcast. Uh, if you listened to the first one with John McKenzie, I really hope you enjoyed. If not, uh, go check it out. Uh, today, I've got a very, very special guest, um, a self-proclaimed online joker, uh, ambassador for the Calm Zone, uh, which we'll talk more about later. Um, but overall, to me, just one of the best Twitter accounts out there, really. Uh, it's Johnny Sharples. Johnny, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you doing, Max? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Uh, excited to start this podcast. Um, so I want to start off with a question. I'll ask all my guests, just when did your love for football begin? Do you have a first memory watching a game, playing? Uh, talk to me about that. Uh, the first... So I got into, I got into football... Uh, so my first memories of it are Euro 96, which uh, is probably before you were born, which is a depressing thought to have. Um, but uh, yeah, so Euro 96 was the first time. I didn't really like football up until that point. Um, I think it came from my, neither of my parents, my mum or my dad, um, liked football at all. So there was never really any football in the house. Um, we didn't have Sky Sports, so... It, it was never on the telly, but then when Euro 96 happened, obviously it took place in England, so there was a bit of a buzz everywhere you went. So, similar, I guess, to the Euros uh, last year. Obviously, it was a lot of it was at Wembley. The final was at Wembley, so there's a big buzz around the country, and so the same sort of thing again. England got to the semi-finals of 1996, so it was sort of inescapable, and I just got into the spirit of it, and so uh, it was heartbroken when England lost in the semi-final. To say I'd had no interest in football up until that point, I remember crying when Gareth Southgate missed the penalty. Um, that lump in my throat is is a cough. It's not me revisiting re- those painful yeah, memories. Getting emotional. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, yeah, Gareth Southgate missing that penalty is probably one of my first uh, real memories of, of football as a whole. Um, and what a way to start, really. It could only have ever gone... Uh, better from there except for the decision that I made uh, decided to support Newcastle because um, Alan Shearer from in my mind although he didn't win player of the tournament was the best best player at Euro 96 top scorer at Euro 96 I sort of knew who he was because um, he played for Blackburn which wasn't far from where I grew up um, and people at school uh, supported Blackburn or at least claimed they did because they were successful at the time um, so I sort of knew who Alan Shearer was and then he joined Newcastle not long after the tournament finished and I decided that um, I was going to do the same thing and, and follow Newcastle as well. And um, so I guess he was the first, first real play that I loved beginning with his um, performances and exploits for England. And then from then on becoming uh, the best striker. And I know as an Arsenal fan, you'll have a very differing opinion of who the best striker to have played in the Premier League is. Um, and I do think it's a toss up between, between Shearer and Omri. But obviously, as a Newcastle fan, I'll always say it was Shearer. And um, yeah, just from then, he was my favourite player growing up. I'd pretend to be Alan Shearer um, when I was playing football, regardless of what position I was playing in, which probably uh, affected my performances somewhat if I was playing left-back, which I did when I was younger. Um, I'm still wanting to be Alan Shearer rather than uh, John Beresford or uh, Didier Domi or whoever the Newcastle left-back was um, at the time. So, yeah, um, I, I think, you know... Newcastle um, at the time were the, the second biggest club in the country, um, but they just finished as runners up in the Premier League the season before I started supporting them. They finished runners up again the season I did support them. England had done well, reached the semi-finals, and there was a big buzz of them going into the 1998 World Cup. So 
there was a lot to love about about the two teams that I was supporting at that time. And obviously, uh, things tailed off slightly uh, as far as Newcastle were concerned. And for a long time, things tailed off as far as England were concerned, probably up until, you know, the, the last World Cup. Um, things were quite bad as an England fan. So, um, but my love for both of them uh, remained. So, yeah, and and I've, I've had, a, had a love of football, playing football as well. Um, ever since yeah um for me it's not even close Henri's miles clear shearer um but look we'll we'll agree to disagree on that one um so obviously growing up a newcastle fan still still are a newcastle fan um i want to ask you i want to i want to take it to the present now and i think i haven't had a chance to ask uh, a newcastle fan and actually i haven't seen a lot of discourse from newcastle fans uh, on this on this subject myself, obviously I'm sure you have, but obviously the dust has settled since um, Mike Ashley sold the club and you've been taken over. From a purely moral perspective, just to provide some context, um, the owners they Saudi Arabian. Yes, yeah, so the, the owners of the yeah, it's the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, which is uh, they're at pains to say is a separate entity to the government of Saudi Arabia, but they. Um, are incredibly closely linked to one another, regardless of what they claim. Yeah, um, so pretty publicly have committed uh, many human rights atrocities. Um, have home of quite quite a lot of homophobic um, policies, and I just want to ask you: so, when when the news was breaking, and then when it happened, how did you approach it, and has have, has your has your mindset changed on it? You know, with I think you get the you have to weigh up. All right, my club's in a going to be in a significantly better position now. We have basically an unlimited pool of money to spend, but with that, you have the you have basically you have you have owners that are doing things that just uh, atroc- atrocities, basically. So how how have you how have you uh, thought thought of it so far? It's like you say, it's a very difficult thing to sort of wrestle with in your mind and sort of reconcile how you feel about it. I think the main thing that I felt when it happened was uh, happiness that Mike Ashley had left. I think that was the overriding emotion. Um, It's sort of, in one sense, we were lucky that we got someone with so much money come in. And I think it's very difficult not to be excited as a football fan. Um, Whoever, whichever football team you support, to know that you're going to be one of, if not the richest uh, football team, especially in this country. Um, I think Manchester City are probably the only one that really comes close. And, and then I suppose Chelsea are very wealthy as well. And then PSG maybe are the only other one in the world, not just in Europe, really, that can compete with the sort of financial muscle that we're going to have. And it's, it's difficult not to get excited about the pedigree of play that you think you might be able to sign but at the same time like you say there are a lot of question marks and a lot of allegations around the Saudi Arabian government and they are at pains to say that they are two separate entities the public investment fund and the the Saudi Arabian government and royal family are two very separate things but like I say they are very closely linked to one another whatever they 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 would like to claim and I think we don't have, as football fans, as an Arsenal fan yourself, as a Newcastle fan, as Manchester City fans uh, were in that position when they got taken over, um, 
and Chelsea fans were as well. You don't get a say in who your owners are, really. That's a it's a private uh, transaction that happens between two people that are obviously very very wealthy. So it's difficult to really we we don't have a say. So it's difficult for for us to really put up too much of a fight when it happens. We can we can take banners to matches. We can march through the cities. We can. Uh, sign petitions and stuff but at the end of the day it's probably not going to make that much difference to it to anything and at the same time there's no ethical way of making billions of pounds you know mm. every 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 billionaire has at some point found some sort of tax loophole or has uh, stolen an idea from somebody uh, or has you know Mike Ashley zero hours contracts very um questionable policies around staff welfare and things at Sports Direct. But there is a world, world of difference between the way that Mike Ashley operated his businesses and the allegations about, about you know, the Saudi Arabian government and royal family being linked to the murder of dissent, dis, dissenting journalists and things like that. So there is a lot to weigh up. Uh, but the, I think the main thing as a football fan, as a Newcastle fan specifically, sorry, is that you acknowledge that there are allegations there and you acknowledge that where the money's coming from is not a very pure source and you don't kick up a fuss when a journalist will point that out as happens on Twitter or a fan of another football club points that out um, because it is the truth or the allegations are substantial and, and um, yeah you don't have to go to a football match in traditional Middle Eastern dress you don't have to put a Saudi Arabian flag on your uh, Twitter account or whatever, or take one to the football match. You just have to accept these are our new owners now. There's nothing we could have done about it. We supported them before the owners came in, like we supported them before Mike Ashley came in. We'll probably still be supporting them when they leave or when they sell up to somebody else. It's our football club at the end of the day. And, and so we sh- shouldn't be in the position where we have to answer to the owners and if the Premier League were doing their job properly and if the government had a leg to stand on then we wouldn't have been put in this position because they would say look you failed the owners and directors test and Mm -hmm. because of the human rights issues and Newcastle fans and football fans of other clubs that have been taken over by similar you know uh, consortiums or what have you wouldn't have to answer these questions on behalf of their billionaire owners that couldn't care less. If I'd, if I'd stopped putting money into Newcastle, if I stopped buying shirts or buying match tickets, either someone else is going to, you know, step in and, and become a fan and, and take the seat off me that I'm not going to buy. Or it's not going to really make a difference. If they're the richest owners in the world, me not paying £40 for a match ticket, it's not going to make the blindest bit of difference to them. So it's a very, like you say, very difficult position to be put in. Um, one we shouldn't really have been put in to begin with if the people that make the decisions were making the arguably the correct decisions. Um, and you've, you've got me going now. And it's not the like when people try and point out that, you know, the public investment fund have shares in, you know, they've had shares in Twitter in time, they've had shares in Uber, they've had shares in Disney. That's not the same as having a controlling stake in something that represents a whole city, something that's so visible. You wouldn't, if, if Newcastle hadn't been taken over and the, the storm hadn't been kicked up on, on Twitter or, or what have you, you probably wouldn't know who the public investment fund had really invested in. And then 
when people this is, I'm talking about Newcastle fans using the Uber thing as an excuse to sort of complain. And then when you you've got events like the WWE going and have um events in Saudi Arabia, boxing takes place in Saudi Arabia. I think it was the Joshua and Fury fight in Saudi Arabia, or Joshua's definitely had a, a fight Josh, in Saudi Arabia. Joshua Ruiz, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, the the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. People did cook up, kick up a fuss about those sort of things, and articles were written about those sort of things. And I think when City got taken over and when Chelsea got taken over, there were articles written about that as well, about how dodgy that money is or how unethical the practices are of, the, of Russia or of, or of the UAE or what have you. But as Newcastle fans, 10 years ago, why would you go and search those articles out? You wouldn't, but they were written. And so I think it's not it's not healthy to have this sort of victim mentality because it doesn't it's not factual and also it doesn't help you don't make you more of a fan if you kick off and it doesn't uh, who cares what journalists write no 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 disrespect to anyone that's an aspiring journalist no disrespect <laughs> to anyone that is currently a journalist but it makes no difference to me as a as a Newcastle fan what some journalist is going to write about Newcastle. Who cares? I'm still going to support them, probably. So stop getting on journalists' backs for reporting factual things about the current owners of Newcastle. So all in all, uh, I'm on the fence a bit, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that's that's quite a a nice balanced way of looking at it. Um, I don't think it has to be one extreme way. Obviously, you stop supporting the club. You've grown up loving, uh, or you know, you just fall in love with with these owners just because they're pumping money into your club. Um, and I think it was a, it was an important point to make. Um, you know, no one a no one becomes a billionaire through um, through hard work or you know through Molly May's uh, perception of of working. Of you know, everyone everyone to be fair does have the same twenty four hours unless you're a billionaire. Um, but also. Well, no, at least in my opinion, no one deserves to have that much money. It just doesn't make sense when people are struggling to get uh, get by day to day. Um, but if we take if we take it back, uh, you mentioned Mike Ashley. Uh, if we take it back, maybe more to a to a footballing uh, perspective. How do you how do you view those those Mike Ashley years now they're over and you have a bit of hindsight because um, he got a lot of stick uh, from from the fans and obviously you have more of an idea why obviously I have a general uh general clue why but I remember Rio Ferdinand criticizing uh, Newcastle fans for being ungrateful when you went down to the championship in in 2016 or 17 and he pumped he pumped <clears throat> excuse me pumped quite a lot of money uh in the club to try and get you back to where you were so looking back on those years how do you, how do you view those years as a as a fan with uh frustration there were good moments like we finished fifth one year and I think I can see what he tried to do at at some points um which is how he runs how he runs his other businesses you know he buys things uh cheap or he buys brands cheap and then tries to make profits on them by selling their merch like Caramore or Slasinger or or whoever he tried to do that in a football sense you know he, he signed Yoan Kabai quite cheap, four and a half million pounds, sold him for 20 million pounds. Um, Denver Bar, we got very cheap. I think we got him a free transfer. 
or admittedly only went for about seven and a half million pounds because of a clause in his contract. Hatton Ben Arthur, you know, we got him very cheap and his resale value, if he kept up his performances and, and his attitude was okay, he would have been worth into the 20 million pound mark at the time. Again, Papi Cece, I think we paid about 12 million pound for him. If we'd sold him that first after six months, he would have probably fetched into the 20, 25 million pounds. We'd have made a healthy profit. We tried to do the same with David Santon. Um, Yanga and Biwa, when we had him, was sort of viewed in that same way. Czech Teote, uh, we got for about three and a half million pounds. At one point, he was probably worth, you know, 20 million pounds-ish. So I think what he was trying to do was sort of buy cheap players, which is a clever way of running a football club, especially on something like Football Manager. Unfortunately, it doesn't, you know, translate into the real world quite that well. The, the sort of mm. money ball way of, of running a, a sports team doesn't necessarily work the same way in football as it does in, in other sports. But you can see what he wanted to do, but it just didn't work because we ended up, you know, Tiote, you know, was a good player for a long time, but maybe stayed longer than he should have done. Similar with Papi Cisse, he had that sort of golden period when he first joined where everything he touched seemed to end up in the back of the net and then it just went sour a bit and Ben Arthur's attitude and, and fell out with a couple of the coaches and stuff like that so it's a risky strategy but at the same time you can't survive on four and a half million pound signings five million pound signings constantly and um, it was only towards the end where you know Almiron came in um which is when we broke our transfer record, which stood since 2005 when we signed Michael Owen. You know, then he signed Jolinton for £40 million, which Jolinton's only just come in good now because he's changed position and maybe he has better coaching and stuff like that. He's come to understand, and he's been in the Premier League a while, so understands the physicality and what he's meant to be doing. Only right towards the end of the reign when, when we started spending a bit of money. And we were in Europe almost every season before Mike Ashley took over, whether it was the Cup Winners' Cup Champions League a few times, the UEFA Cup or Europa League or what have you. Mike Ashley joins. We, we had one season in Europe, which is for the season where we finished fifth. Um, and then when we finished fifth that summer, between, you know, after finishing fifth and then going into the Europa League, we made one signing, which was Vernon Anita. And that squad needed more than that. To, we should have been building on that. We were a bit lucky to finish uh Fifth, I think Chelsea finished sixth, but then won the Champions League. Um, so we wouldn't have really pushed on to break the top four, but there was a chance there to cement ourselves as the sixth or seventh best team in the Premier League, which we did we didn't really take advantage of. Um, and yeah, just stopped stopped spending money, stopped investing in the facilities. Our, our training ground's not very good at all, especially when you see someone like Leicester, who've obviously Harry Maguire paid for their, you know, the eight you don't get an 80 million pound transfer every season but you know he needed to invest in the training ground needed to invest in the stadium needed to invest more in the surrounding area of the stadium rather than selling the land off to student accommodation and stuff like that so I, there's sometimes you can see what he was trying to do and he was trying to build, bring his business acumen into football which they're two very separate things and um, I'm probably giving him too much grace because he's responsible for some of the worst times like i say he did invest money when we got relegated but that was to protect his own investment so he knew that mm. any money that he spent to get us back up he'd recoup by us coming back up and getting the money and getting the tv money and being in the premier league and selling more shirts and stuff like that whereas if we stayed in the championship we'd have just been lost and i think we would have stayed there for a, 
long time because no one would have bought it off Mark Ashley if he was still a championship club. He wouldn't have got the money that he wanted and no big business person is going to be interested in, in really buying a championship club because it's so difficult to get out of the championship. That's why some investors go lower down so they can build all their way up and they can become the hero or they buy a Premier League club because, you know, that's already there. So, um, but yeah, I think a very frustrating time to be a Newcastle fan, very annoying. But there was, like I say, some good good moments, good players came to the club, um, some exciting players came to look like Hatton Ben Arthur is one of the most exciting players I've ever seen play at Newcastle probably one of the most exciting players to have played in the Premier League but he tailed off slightly the, the time where we had Denver Barroom and Papi Cisse was just a lot of fun and there were some good matches and some good moments when we had Mike Ashley but he's just marred by a series of unfortunate especially managerial decisions as well I haven't even touched appointing John Carver and appointing uh, Steve McLaren and stuff like that so yeah, it just there were moments when we could have been better than we were, but we just a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of frustration, I think I would say. Yeah, um, <laughs> I envy you those years. They sounded really, really fun. Uh, so I just want to want to move on now. I want to make it um, more about you, Johnny. So I want to ask, we'll see if, if you don't follow Johnny on Twitter. First of all, please do, because he's magnificent. Uh, and second of all, just to provide a bit of context, he's he just posts really funny tweets, uh, mostly to do with football, current events, just just great stuff. Um, so I want to ask, growing up and even now, who are some like pivotal comedy influences, inspirations? It's quite it's quite clear. Stuff like Alan Partridge is is quite prominent in in a lot of your tweets and and the style of uh, your tweets. Um, but talk to me about. Who, who just really made you laugh? Um, it's weird because f- football and comedy have never really had much of a relationship with each other for, for a long, long time. I think a lot of comedy <clears throat> historically, and probably up until the quite recent past, was very public school Oxbridge comedy. So a lot of the people that dominated the comedy uh, that we see on television and we saw on television, right from Monty Python and the goodies, they were all went to Oxbridge, uh, right through to like even Peep Show, something as recent as that, you know, um, David Mitchell and Robert Webb both went to Oxbridge. Richard Ayoade did as well. In between us, like Joe Thomas and Simon Bird both went there. So it's been really dominated by that. And not wanting to stereotype, but you don't really associate public school in and Oxbridge with football. So I think that until but possibly until Badil and Skinner, Satan Greaves a little bit as well. There wasn't much connection between between football and comedy. So it's difficult to to sort of resonate. And then nowadays comedy is much more open to people because of YouTube, because of TikTok, because of Twitter. Um it's opened up people that weren't able, people didn't have the opportunities to try out comedy or write comedy because they couldn't just quit their job. They didn't have their parents to fall back on. And that's why a lot of the voices now we see are from, you know, minority backgrounds, you know, um, like people just do nothing started off on, on, on YouTube and stuff like that. And they made it, they released a film, they're massive. Um, but yeah, so football and comedy, like growing up, it never occurred to me that, that football and comedy could be so close to one another. To me, they were two very separate things. You had comedy that I really liked, and football 
that I really liked. And I guess the first first time that I realised that they could be pushed together slightly more, I, I think was probably listening to the football ramble, probably about 12, year, 12 years ago, when they first really started out, especially when Pete Donaldson first joined them, I think. I realised that they were just talking about football and they were just talking about the football that had happened at the weekend, but they weren't taking it seriously like you would see on Final Score or on Football Focus or on Match of the Day. They were joking about the stuff that happened. They were, and it was like, yeah, like football, it doesn't matter that much. There is a lot of funny stuff that happens. Newcastle lose, it's going to annoy me for a little bit, but if, you know, someone headed the ball into the back of someone else's head and it went in, that's objectively good comedy. You know, like I've seen some of the fun funniest things happen in such a serious environment so I think in terms of football and comedy that was that football ramble was probably my real awakening to it's a concept that can be done obviously that was for a podcast and then I'd say as far as Twitter is concerned I'd say Adam Hurry his football cliches um, yeah he's brilliant is one he was like he's not even making jokes he's making observations which obviously observational comedy is a big thing but it's just he's finding the funny and the mundane a lot of the time and the like the cli- obviously the cliches of football the more you hear them and the more you notice them the funnier they get and I think Ian McIntosh who used to used to write for the Guardian would be on Guardian Football Weekly he's now part of the Athletic he was another one who I would, would like see on Twitter and be like he's he's making the mundane he's making football he's making the very serious very very funny um but away from football I did grow up wanting to be a stand-up comedian um and just lost entered competitions when I was at university and never turned up because I lost the nerve um I think it's very very difficult to I, I think you you watch like live at the Apollo or something which I think is a lot of people's introduction to stand-up comedy uh for me that my first introduction was probably the live floor show which used to be on channel BBC2 Dora O'Brien presented it before Dora O'Brien was a big uh panel show person I think that was my and you see it and they make it look so easy and they make it look effortless. And that just shows how good they are. Because if you sit down and try and write something and you're not just trying to write it because you think it's funny, you've got to think that there's going to be an audience, don't matter how small it is, but there's going to be people in the audience that have got to find it funny as well. And it's really difficult because you want to write something that you think is funny, but at the same time acknowledge that there's other people there. And I just found that very difficult. And so I just put it on the, ignored it, went and got it got my degree and went and got a job and then Twitter came around and it's like I, mean, I was on Twitter for a while before I started posting memes and jokes and stuff but then you've got an audience there that are they're not paid to see you so there's no real expectation there but they're a captive audience and they've chosen to come and follow you because they like what you've tweeted so you just keep tweeting stuff that you find funny and you you, you found your audience and they found you so that became a lot easier but in terms of comedy that I've I wouldn't say really say that they were influences but like I say a lot of the stuff that I like is Alan Partridge love Alan Partridge remember um first watching Alan Partridge probably in the early 2000s when he came back for the second series of I'm Alan Partridge on TV um and uh, I'd say the day-to-day uh, was one of the greatest comedies that I've ever seen that's where Alan Partridge first started out so it's a Chris Morris who's probably one of the 
greatest comedy minds this country has ever produced. He's responsible for uh, the day-to-day Brass Eye, the film Four Lions, some of the uh, Nathan Barley, some of the best comedy that this country's produced has come from the mind of Chris Morris. And he's just a fascinating man because he doesn't, he don't need to work. So he picks and chooses what he wants to do, which is, is really good. Uh, stand-up comedy, I'd say Ross Noble, who's a Northeast comedian, was probably the first comedian that I ever became absolutely obsessed with as a stand-up. Um, he's just he he's someone that made it look absolutely effortless, but you could tell that he was constantly he would go on stage with four stories that he would want to tell, and the rest was just ad-libbed from audience interaction. And he'd be on stage for two, two and a half hours, just re- responding to, to the audience. And it was just incredible to watch. And now I'd say James Acast is probably the best stand-up comedian that is in the UK at the moment. He's just, he's a loss to social media because when he was on Twitter, he was just brilliant, just absolutely amazing. Um, again, someone that makes it look absolutely effortless. But when you really think about the stuff that he does, he's got four specials on Netflix um, called Repertoire. And they're four standalone comedy shows, but they all interlink with each other, the beginning of the first one and the end of the last one. And it's just one complete cycle. And you sit and think about how much that takes to write those four comedy shows and have an overarching themes but then they're four separate. You can watch them standalone. You don't have to watch the others. You can watch them however you want. It just shows that time, effort and thought somebody like that has. And then he's also very open about his mental health. If you watch uh, Call the Sandra, I Hate Myself, 1999, which is one of the worst named um, stand-up shows ever. Just the way he talks about his mental health, but in an accessible way, and in a way that is funny um, and a way that helps you understand him and he can help you understand yourself, not to uh, intellectualize comedy too much, but it's just incredible. And I think he he is one one of the very one of the very best um, that I've ever seen. But, you know, there's lo- there's loads of great there's constantly loads of great comedy. Maisie Adams, one of my favorite at the moment. She's uh, just sort of getting a big kick. She did the live at the Apollo Christmas special. Um, she's she's great. There's there's just so much great comedy and they're all in my experience I think there used to be a lot of competition between stand-up comics in this country probably in the 90s um, and they all seem to be fighting each other to get recognition whereas the current crop of British comedians I think are very supportive of each other they all seem good friends in my interactions with them uh, they've always been very kind and very given of their time so I think we're very lucky at the moment to have the comedians we do in this country um, so to answer your question uh, about who my comedy influences were, all of them lot probably, in 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 different ways, in ways that sort of make make me think of of what it is that I can joke about, what you don't joke about, how to structure a joke, uh, what to avoid, stuff like that. So, yeah. I've never really, 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 really thought about it before. But I'd say, in terms of football and Twitter, Adam Adam Hurry is uh, probably the the biggest influence on on how I see things or how I how I acknowledge that you can use football and Twitter to make things funny. And I think he's still now the best at it. Yeah, I think 
when you talk about like, I watched that um I watched Repertoire that, that that special that James Acaster did, it was brilliant. But you talk about the effort and the thought and the hundreds of hours of curation that must have gone into that. I think the difference you get with football and, and comedy is that I'd say ninety nine percent of the comedy in football is completely unintentional and there's no there's no thought behind it, it's it's pure instinct. I mean obviously there's the there's a thought behind, you know, a little car carrying a ball onto a pitch, but it's more of a it's more of an advertisement. Um obviously they knew was gonna generate um attention. But Mohammedi doing a roly poly throwing in the ninetieth minute of a match, like he's not doing that for laughs. He's like just it just raises so many questions. Um but yeah, um I also want to say I did I did you mentioned the football ramble. I was lucky enough to do work experience at Stack, which is a podcast network that does the football ramble, uh, Jack Mates Happy Hour. Uh and I spent I spent quite a bit of time with Pete. Um and I'd say I come from a bit of an analytical background when it comes to football. Uh I do like my my XG. And I showed a I showed a piece I wrote, um, a big like two thousand word essay on Brighton. Um, completely destructing their their season, and I showed it to Pete, and he was so nice just to take the time out of his day to read it, and he gave me like all this extensive feedback, and he 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 did say exactly what you were saying, like he was basically like, mate, it's it's just football, you don't need to. He said, I remember one one phrase he said, don't hide behind XG, um, and obviously I do still use XG. I'm not a big f- fanatic of it; it does have its flaws, but. You know, doing this podcast, you know, we're just here to. You were just chatting about Newcastle and and how you feel about the club and and the football they play. We don't need to, you know, go into loads of stats about it. Um, and I think the work they've done and the longevity of uh, the podcast as well is 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 quite amazing. Watching it from behind the scenes as well was, um, I was really lucky to. Um, but yeah, uh, we went we mentioned Twitter. Uh, and I don't want to make you feel old because I'm looking at you. You look great. You're a young guy, um, but I was I was five years old when you joined Twitter. That's no. Um, <laughs> so and you shouldn't you shouldn't be allowed to use Twitter now if you were five years old when I joined it. It should be yeah. against the terms and conditions. Um, that's what, so you joined in you joined in 2009. Um, I want to I want to ask how's your experience change over what what 13 13 years now after after this year ends obviously with um your your following significantly increasing it must have changed in in lots of ways can you just talk about you know how twitter was in the 2000s compared to the 2020s yeah so i think i joined in february february 2009 so it's probably not oh no, it might be the end of january 2009 so it's not not long off for 13 years Oh my word! If it's a child, it begins secondary school. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just joined. I remember it was this. So it's probably three, just under three years old when I joined Twitter. So it, it was sort of, and I'd used a lot of social media up until that point. So I was on MySpace, which you probably won't remember since you were in the womb when MySpace sort of disappeared <laughs> off the radar. Uh, Facebook I joined Facebook when you had to have a university email address to sign up to it so before old people remembering things um, took over uh, Facebook 
remembering that the ice cream man used to come around every night. Share if you agree. Uh, before that all happened, um, so I used to, I used social media a lot, and then Twitter was in the news. I remember at the time you won't remember since you were uh, still playing with Playmobil. Um, <laughs> where it was in the news at the time because Stephen Fry got stuck in a lift and he was live tweeting being stuck in a lift and I'm not want to disparage the news stories of 2009 but that was on that was like headline news for like a couple of days and um, so I was like I'll find out what what Twitter's all about so I, I joined and absolutely did not see the point of it to me it was just like Facebook it was 140 characters then and it just seemed like sharing Facebook statuses constantly so that's basically what I used it for my first six months on there were just me probably a lot of it was sharing what my scores on call of duty were and my kill death ratios and uh what I'd done so uh and then just telling people that I liked robots that's how my like 10 followers which were people that I knew uh, uh random like what music I was listening to what gigs I was going to and stuff were like tweeting, that were you tweeting I like robots yeah, I think I tweeted that. That was one of my first tweets, uh, t- tweeting that I'd gone out the night before and stuff like that. Stuff that I really don't know why people uh, would have cared to hear about it. But um, obviously back then I only had a handful of followers. And back then you couldn't even tweet photographs and pictures. You had to sign up to a separate website to host the pictures and then you'd link the pictures onto uh, through Twitter. Um so it was, it was different and I, I just followed friends and, and people that I knew uh, and it was just another way of keeping up with with people and then over time Facebook's just I think that was really before brands joined it as well so like well, obviously Manchester United didn't have a Twitter account until about 2013 or, or 14 they took a really really long time but it wasn't overrun with brands and I think it, that that becomes apparent if you look at like Manchester City's old tweets and they're talking about how weird the Hamburg crest is and how it looks like the Umbro logo and um, you can dig up old Liverpool tweets of them just saying things like ha 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 and that's all the tweet says and obviously it was it was linked to something but you would not get that from a, a, a commercially run uh, Twitter account nowadays but it was just different and there was a lot less attention paid to it I, I know I said that there was a, a news story about Stephen Fry using it but it, it wasn't as all consuming as it is now and yeah just over time it's just got more and more interest brands joined it news news uh websites and news outlets joined it and it was a way and it's really useful for stuff like that obviously the, the you can get news straight away straight away as, as soon as it happens football you get goal updates as soon as they happen and then get disallowed and you get the update straight from that so in many ways it's a lot better now than it than it was and but at the same time there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of negatives about about Twitter and about social media as a whole now about the racism and homophobia and transphobia and misogyny and sexism that happens on there, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. There's loads of it and it's just not very well uh, sort of looked after. I'm not suggesting that everyone, you know, there shouldn't be police, there should probably should be police involvement for it at all, but... Twitter could do a lot better job in sort of looking after individuals that are targeted, could do a lot of better reporting system. Um, but I guess the volume of 
volume of people that use it now and the number of tweets that must get sent every single second of the day makes it unfeasible for anybody to manually sit there and, and look over these things. Um, but in my experience, it does need to does need to be better. And I think that's the overriding negative of not just Twitter, but you know, Instagram and, and Facebook and uh, I'd, I've never been on TikTok because I'm old, but um, I imagine TikTok probably has issues around that sort of thing. YouTube comments, you see them all. As, 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 uh, that's even ignoring the sort of content that often gets uploaded onto YouTube as well. So I think that's the main negative of social media is the fact that people say horrendous stuff on there. Um, but again, it's really good for marginalised communities to find one another. It's, I think and not the anonymous aspect of it is negative in the sense that people uh, use that as a carte blanche excuse to say what they want. But at the same time, it allows people to explore sexualities and sides of themselves that they don't feel comfortable doing in the real world or attaching their real name to. So there are positives in that as, you know, people are able to find like-minded people that they might not do over lockdown. It's been the main way of people to connect with others if they've been isolated at home or they don't um, have much of a community around them, don't live with their family, etc. Uh, it makes people who are struggling with their mental health find people to speak to about it. So there's positives and negatives and, and for every horrible tweet that gets sent I'm sure there's an abundance of, of good tweets that get sent but um, that does really draw it back and, and I think it does need to be clamped down on a lot more um, anonymous uh, banning anonymous accounts definitely isn't the way to go um, but just a better reporting system um, but I like Twitter the main thing that annoys me about Twitter is when people reply to my tweets um, I don't I feel a bit overwhelmed sometimes when if I say something and I get a lot of replies um, I also sometimes get frustrated with the person that Twitter has turned me into I hate typos and if one of my tweets I reread it like four hours later and it has a typo in it I'll often delete it regardless of how many people have interacted with it uh, and I also fall out of love with my tweets very quickly so sometimes it feels a bit like a snapchat story some of my tweets like I'll tweet it and then two minutes later get deleted so it's a special little treat for anyone that got to see it in the interim because uh, I just lose confidence and, and reread it and think it's not as funny as I initially thought so but it is a it's a it's an amazing platform and as long as it's being used well which obviously often it isn't um myself included say that uh some really stupid things on there that I think are funny but obviously aren't but um yeah it's, it's like social media as a whole has been incredible and uh it's obviously here to stay now because uh it's so important so valuable for the way people live their lives like the Arab Spring is the first thing I can really remember being organized on you know the overthrowing of the uh Egyptian government and stuff like that was all arranged through social media and um, it was obviously a positive thing for the people of those countries to have happened so um yeah it's a good thing that's often used very badly by very uh, misguided people is probably the best way to sum it up mm. you touched on like spelling and grammar and the attention you attentions to detail you pay regarding that to your to your tweets like has has twitter taught you anything uh about yourself about life in general oh, that's quite a quite a deep question but but have you have you taken anything away from you know building up quite a large following uh i'm uh more annoying probably than i'd, I'd like to admit uh 
and people uh, often will tell me that uh, they are like to me I'm not as funny as I think which um, is probably true as well regardless of how many people retweet or like my tweets I probably think I'm a lot uh, more due more attention than, than I necessarily get and I don't know I think there's there's a, there's a side of me as, as well that I never po- would never post on social media, which is probably I tweet very little about my my home life and things like that because I think you've got to have a separation of the two. Um, I sometimes I, like I tweeted that I got engaged earlier this year. Tweet about my brother and my family occasionally. I tweet about the cats sometimes, but it's all very having control of what people see and know about me um, so I probably realized that I'm a lot more of a private <laughs> private person than when I was tweeting out my um, call of duty scores and, and telling everyone that I like robots I'd never tell anyone I like robots now it's very personal detail to express to people um, but yeah um, now I think the main thing is that I'm probably just more annoying than I realize and not as not as funny as I think and that doesn't stop on Twitter like my girlfriend I'll show her a tweet that I've written she'll tell me she doesn't understand it or it's not as funny as I think it is so um it's nice to get that reassurance offline sometimes as well as online um but yeah just just a very irritating person (laughs) I think but but you yeah you don't have to be in my mind when I'm thinking of these tweets and trying to construct the the way the the words have to go and that can be annoying like when you think of a good tweet but you just can't think of the right way to word it and then Mm. that'll just be on your mind for like six hours and it gets to like midnight it's like I should be asleep by now but I'm still trying to figure out how this what's essentially quite a funny joke can be worded in a way that makes sense but it's still funny it's very difficult and yeah it's often consuming again that's that's something that i've realized but yeah and like i say with spelling and grammar i probably realize i'm more of a perfectionist than i ever knew i've never been one for text text speaking anyway it's even when again which you won't remember when nokia 3210s are around and you had a, a limited number of characters that you could send on your 10 free text messages that you got on your pay as you go contract you had to lol and omg and wtf quite a lot i was never one for doing that so um yeah probably an annoying perfectionist i think is probably the best realization i've had towards my character you don't you can disagree whenever you want max that's fine um i'm gonna gonna definitely disagree um (laughs) perfectionist sure but definitely definitely not annoying um I want to ask you a really serious question now. Um, was Dennis Bergkamp's turn on Nico de Bezos a fluke? Um, do you want a sincere answer or would you like a joke answer? Can you can you firstly provide a bit of context for why I'm asking this question and then just give me everything? Uh, the closing the question, Dennis Bergkamp's turn on Nico de Bezos was a, was a fluke in 2002, October the something 2002 at St James's Park uh, Arsenal beat Newcastle and as part of that Dennis Burkamp scored the most overrated goal in football history his bad first touch uh, led to uh, admittedly quick piece of thinking uh, to get around Nikos Dabizas and uh, slot the ball home and um, yeah m- well my sincere answer would be that yes it was a was a fluke 
my joke answer would that be it would be that it was also a foul on Nikos Dabizas as well. Now in nowadays in VAR it would probably be given as a foul because he pushes him right in the uh, chest slash throat area. Um, my main question is that if it if he if it was intentional and if he had that in his locker, uh, why did he only do it once? The, the opportunity must have presented to to him multiple times. No, uh, yeah, because that that ball from Perez was fired in. It bounced up and there was quite a lot of spin on it. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Now, like Johan Cruyff didn't only uh, do the Cruyff turn once. The Beatles didn't only play Hey Jude once. So, that, but that, uh... ball, that ball fired in from Perez is such a, it's such a unique situation. And to have your, your back to the defender with quite limited space in front of you, I think that, that is a pretty unique position to be in, I'd argue. Probably that ball with all that spin on it that causes bad first touch. Oh, you think? <laughs> Again, oh, you know, well. bad first touch, but quick bit of thinking. Uh, went, went, went and got the ball afterwards uh, after pushing Nikos Dabizas to the floor quite heinously. Um, but yeah, I just, I just, um, he scored better goals than that. It's stuff like Dennis Burkamp was a sublime player. He scored, uh, I think I'm sure he had the one, two, three uh, goal, goal of the month. One year yeah, against Ipswich. Uh, for gets, was it? And he scored an amazing goal against Leicester, and he scored that exact same goal again against the Argentina at the nineteen ninety eight World Cup, where he brings the ball down and then, and then uh, takes flicks it with the outside of his boot. You know, he did that mm. more than once. Obviously, he meant that. Um, but yeah, just he was a he was obviously a very very good footballer. But I just don't don't think that he meant meant to do that. Um, but uh, and and nothing anyone says. Nikos Dabizas has said he doesn't think it was a fluke, and that hasn't changed my opinion of it. So um, I very much doubt at this point in time anything would will will change my mind. If Shearer um, did it, it would have. If 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 Shearer doing that is it a fluke? Shearer never had a bad first touch, so it would never have done it anyway. So say um, he <laughs> say he did say in some crazy hypothetical world he had a bad touch. Is it a fluke? Uh, I'd have to see it firsthand to really know. Mm. Well, it probably wouldn't be a fluke because one, it was Newcastle, and uh, two, um, uh, Ricardo Fuller scored quite a similar goal for Stoke, and that's not a fluke because it wasn't against Newcastle. So um, these these are these are questions that uh, must be answered. And yes, it was was probably a fluke, in my I opinion. Guess, I guess we'll never know. Um... But yeah, that that's a, that's quite uh that's one of my favorite like recurring jokes on your that come up on your tweets. But probably my favorite is um, your obsession with trying to ask Gary Neville if he's watched Sharknado, and that's also resulted in its own Twitter account. Has Gary Neville watched Sharknado? Which proceeds to tweet a variation of the word no every day, which I'm just fascinated by. Where the hell did this come from? Because when you get uh, a masterpiece like Sharknado and an enigma like Gary Neville, I mean, you, you you struck gold there. So where did that come from? So at the start of probably the start of the first lockdown, so nearly two two years ago, probably Gary Neville, like most 
former England footballers of the late 90s and early 2000s doesn't seem to like watching films. Um, him and Michael Owen have gone on record of, of saying that they just don't watch films. Um, so he's put a tweet out saying that he had, obviously we had a lot of time in the first first stages of the, the pandemic. Um, so he just put a tweet out, out saying, has anyone got any film recommendations? And so I just replied with Sharknado because one... <laughs> It's a funny film, and two, he's definitely not seen it, so may as well get him to watch it. Um, and he, he, I think he, I'm sure he must have replied to some people, or quote tweeted people, and saying, "I'll oh, watch this," or "I've seen that before," or "I don't rate who whatever actors in it." Um, and I, unless he's muted me, which is entirely well, I don't think he would have muted me before this. He's probably taken to muting me on Twitter after this, but. I have blue tick privilege, obviously, so he's definitely seen my tweet because you can't you can't uh, ignore an interaction with another blue ticked person. Um, so he definitely would have gotten some sort of notification about it, and he just he obviously didn't watch it. So I took it upon myself every so often because he likes doing a bit of a Q and A every so often, Gary Neville on Twitter. Mm. So whenever he did a Q and A, just ask him if he'd watched Sharknado yet. Uh, <laughs> Whenever there's anything that could be even slightly linked to watching a film or, or watching something, asking if you watched Sharknado yet. Um, and I think at this stage, it's funny the fact that he just hasn't replied. If he replied saying no, I think that would sort of end the, the, the I don't know if you can really even call it a joke, but it would end, end the sort of the, 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 the whole sort of thing. Um, so so it just carries on and I've, you've got to do it sparingly you can't just do it every time he tweets because that's annoying for him and annoying for people that follow the both of us and it would wear thin a lot quicker um and the twitter account was just I, making bots on twitter is quite fun um so that was being relatively easy to set up it once you've done one you can probably you can really do it for anyone so just it was the most difficult thing was thinking of enough variations on the word no to make it feasible and then when he did a video with uh jamie carragher they did a q a and jamie carragher asked if gary neville had watched something and gary neville replied no uh, that video was was good to add to the back catalogue of various ways of saying no so um yeah like i said i'd just be if he ever replied and said no or even if he watched it i um i think i'd be disappointed but i do i do know what I'm, if he ever replies to me and uh, in one way or the other, I do know what I'm going to say in response. So it's nice to have that in the back pocket. Um, but we'll just we'll just see. But I don't know why. I also don't know why, along with a lot of the other things that I tweet, don't know why people find it funny. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just I, think, I guess it's just that if it was any other film, if it was, I don't know, Cool, cool Runnings, which is my favourite film. If it, if it was that, I don't think it would have the same sort of shelf life or, or sort of thing like humour behind it. But um, it just keeps me entertained every so often. So I think that's the main thing. That's what most of my tweets are, just ways of keeping myself entertained. And if other people find it funny or other people enjoy it, then, you know, I get the serotonin boost in my head and everything's fine in the day. I, I think it's it's just just the idea of him finally sitting down, watching Sharknado, and just coming away from it being like, what? How many hours did I just waste? <laughs> or this guy, actually, yeah, this guy really wants me to watch Sharknado. It must be, must be a good film. And he sits down and 
Tara, I can't remember if Tara Reed and Kurt Angle are in the first one. Imagine just seeing them come on screen as sharks fly through the air. Dodgy acting. I used to watch me and my me and my um, when I lived with two of my friends um, when you were probably about four years old. Um, me and my, when I lived with two of my friends, we used to watch things like Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, um, Mega Piranha. These hor- these really bad. And there was a whole spate of them that came out within like a Sharknado is the one that had multiple sequels. But um, yeah, there was just there was these really bad Birdemic, which is probably on YouTube now. Just these really bad films that we would watch. We'd pay money for the DVD because it was before streaming services. And, and not that Sharknado is on any streaming services. Netflix have got better things to spend their money on. But um, I'm pretty yeah, sure there is watch- a I'm pretty sure there is a Sharknado or at least a few on Netflix. Yeah, I might go. And, I was going to say I might go and watch it, but I think my girlfriend would have very strong opinions on that. I don't think we get. I'd get away with it. Uh, but yeah, someday. Yeah, like I said, I sort of hope that he never never responds. At the same time, if he does, I know what I'll say back to him. So um, either either eventuality's got an end point. So I'll look for look forward to that whenever it happens. Mm. Well, that's good. We've learnt you like robots and aqua aqua related films the really um, the really weird thing is i have a massive phobia of um fish so um like really I get uncomfortable if there's fish uh don't like going in the sea in case they touch my feet don't like seeing them in the shops don't like the smell of them um like the idea of the like octopus anything that lives in the sea just really makes mate, me feel very squirmy and uncomfortable i've got my, my only fear is of squids giant squids just because certain animals like snakes, spiders, sharks, like there are ways of beating them off. But once a squid's like wrapped around you, like and and my friends think it's a it's an irrational fear because like when are you gonna get in a situation with a squid? But and to to an extent they're right. But just for me, it's just curtains. If if you ever encounter a squid, we will, I'll tell you a very boring story that you might want to cut out of this podcast. <laughs> but like uh, years ago. Well, what year is it now? Probably about six six years ago, me and my girlfriend took um, my nephew to the Sea Life Center, and there's a touching pool where you can like touch like fish. It's like a really shallow um, pond type thing. And you can touch fish and crabs and stuff. So um, me and my nephew were sort of looking at it, and my girlfriend was like, uh, "Well, I won't say my nephew's name." But it's like to my nephew, "Why don't you um, touch?" touch the fish so my, my nephew was like no 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 um, and then my girlfriend goes oh uncle johnny will, will touch one of them and i turned to him i'm not touching them and so my nephew <laughs> panics and goes oh, i'm not touching them either because it's like so good to pass those anxieties on to small children um, yeah. is one of the things that i found so yeah but anyway uh it doesn't quite extend as far as uh, sharknado so that's good news for gary neville yeah well i'll try and stay away from big bodies of water just in general i think we're land animals let's just not go there to be honest um yeah moving on um obviously you're a big big fan of football manager uh as am i for you it's it's changed your life uh completely and we'll move on to that um but before we go to evicha struck um i remember i always do an arsenal save obviously i'm an arsenal fan the beginning of FM uh, and I remember 
Joshua Zerksy scoring a he was a he was a Bayern Wonder kid uh scoring a 90th minute winner and I remember jumping off my bed onto the floor and rolling my ankle um and that's quite a quite a, a poignant memory for me of of playing FM that it just called a, a, a football simulation caused me to have a uh, a genuine injury um I want to ask you like before we go into your most famous save like has has football manager as have any other saves impacted you physically or emotionally um so i've been playing i've been playing football manager well, it was championship manager when i first started playing it since about 1997 or 1998 so the first one i remember playing was uh Championship Manager 93, which we had on the Atari, um, which um, I remember I managed Newcastle, but it was when Newcastle were in uh, the old Division 1, so the one below the Premier League. And um, I cheated. I must have added myself as the Blackburn Rovers manager as well and cheated my way into signing Alan Shearer. Um, Also signed John Fashionu just because he presented um, Gladiators, which was a big... um, ITV Saturday night, uh, a bit like Ninja Warrior, but with uh, more lycra and more people that were just like tennis coaches um, and bodybuilders. Um, so, and then, so I played played that a lot. And then uh, probably the next one that I really played a lot. Well, uh, yeah, I just got emo- like you just form emotional connections to so many different teams. I remember I started a game as. PSV, this must be on Football Manager 2005, maybe, started a game as PSV, and PSV had uh, Herelio Gomez in goal, who um, was, good at the ta- was good at the time, not necessarily in real life, but they had him, they had Alex, who the central defender that went and played for Chelsea, and the work permit situation in the Netherlands was really good, like, you could just sign anyone. So I remember signing Curlon, who was the wonder, big, big wonder kid on that version of the game. Uh, Anthony van den Bore, who was another wonder kid on the game, went on to play for He's the subject of the famous Chris Kamara misread card. Uh, but he was really good at the time. And then I went to Roma and then signed Curlon off PSV and signed van den Boer and then went to, won, won the title there, then went to Manchester United, signed... Uh, Van den Boer and Curlon again signed Higuain signed uh, Danny Drinkwater was the um, p- midfield pivot that uh, Manchester United really could have used at the, the time when they went to England and won the Premier League with Scott Sinclair and Daniel Sturridge uh, won the, sorry won the Premier League won the World Cup with uh, Scott Sinclair and Daniel Sturridge up front I met him um, at Hernando's uh, in Bristol Scott Sinclair now plays for Preston yeah yeah he was, he was an all right player. He had a good he had a good season at, at Swansea in, in 2012. Yeah, he was good at Celtic as well when he went up to yeah. Celtic uh, to begin with. Um, now plays for Preston. I don't think he's getting in the team that much at Preston, really, which is a shame because I think they had high hopes for him. But yeah, and then then what was the next thing that I did? Went and on Football Manager 2010, took Gateshead from the uh, Blue Square Premier uh, up to the Premier League and had a striker called uh, Wesley Ingo Baheng that I'd signed from Newcastle's reserve team on a free transfer. He scored in every single division um, from the uh, conference all the way up to the Premier League. Then I had a Gateshead shirt 
bought a Gateshead shirt, then had to then got and go behind and his number printed on the back of it. But the shirt, the club didn't offer shirt printing, so I had to contact the club directly to ask for him go behind number eight on the back of the shirt. Um, then that was in the Football Manager documentary that they made a few years ago, uh, me talking about that. Um, then I became obsessed with the fact that England would have won the 2006 World Cup if they'd made Owen Hargreaves the centre point of the team. So I went back and played uh, Football Manager 2005 um, to see if England would have won the World Cup with uh, a midfield of Owen Hargreaves, uh, Stephen Gerrard and uh, Frank Lampard as a midfield three and the to see if that would have made the Gerrard and Lampard partnership work became obsessed with that and then we reached football manager 2013 uh when i took over at dinamo dresden and eventually made my way to celtic um and signed a croatian new gen who you've already named avica strock um and he was the best player in the world he's the best player he's not even actually he's probably not uh, the best player that i've ever managed on football manager in terms of his attributes but i think he had the sort of when you mix I suppose when you mix a drink <laughs> I don't drink but if you're making a cocktail and you put all the right ingredients of the cocktail in it tastes amazing not necessarily that's what basically what he was his attributes were sort of it blended in a certain way that made him really good like he didn't have 20s across the board but what he did have him he had 20s in the right places i guess you would say it just made him like he had really good strength he was really quick he had good finishing good first touch good off the ball good uh everything that you needed a really good sort of poacher striker to have and he just he scored 800 and something goals for celtic in all competitions which i think only pele Pele and Romario, are they the only two that have broken a thousand? And both of them are friendlies, and Pele's overhead kick and escape to victory are included in that. So, um, but yeah, he's just phenomenal. And it's not like it was just because the Scottish Premier League was weak at the time, because he was doing it in the Champions League. We won four Champions Leagues while he was uh, there. And that's only because I'm not that good at, not really that good at football manager. I like the story more than being good at it. Like you can invent stories in your head of, of why this player does is called like, especially when you get new gens and stuff, you can invent little biographies and backstories for these players. And that's all the side of it that I kind of enjoy, but we would have probably won more Champions League with a more, uh, uh, with a better manager than me in charge. But he was just, really really good and uh yeah i became a bit obsessed with him um and then the rest of the world got to know who he was as well which was quite fun yeah um you talk about how playing football manager and falling in love with a a new gen led to your work with the calm zone yeah so um like i say this happened on uh football manager 2013 um and so I'd been playing it for quite a long time. And then um, in the December of 2014, uh, my older brother died um, by suicide. And it's very, especially around Christmas, um, which it was, it was just before Christmas. Um, there's not that much to do. You're off. I was off work anyway, um, because, you know, the bank holidays, and stuff like that, taking Christmas leave. Um 
and just there's not nothing really to do we've just we've just come out of christmas anyway and you'll know how we've been in lockdown and stuff there's you know you just sat around a lot of the time doing nothing trying to find something on tv or trying to find something to eat um so all i did in that time was just played a lot of football manager and just um it was really good to escape into a world where just something to focus on that wasn't my brother for a while like not focus on the funeral arrangements or not focus on talking to having to tell another one of my friends what had happened and speak through it with them um, it was just nice to be able to go into this world where I'm the best. Oh, I just said I'm the best. It wasn't very good. <laughs> one of the best managers in the world with one of the best players in the world and just see how it can take me. And, and you'll know, and anyone that's played football manager will know that you can lose 12 hours to football manager and it doesn't feel like time's passed at all. You can spend 12 hours clicking through the national teams trying to find a good new gen half the time mm. <clears throat> so for days on end it was really helpful to just sort of sit with my sister or sit with my parents and make funeral arrangements and uh, or you know go for a walk to clear our heads and then come home come back to my sister's house and and play football manager for a few hours late into the night because you can't have trouble sleeping as well um, and then wake up early and sort of do the same thing again and although it was monotonous it was regimented I guess in one way it was sort of a schedule that I guess I could stick to and so that made things a bit easier as well and yeah it was just after that and uh doing stuff with Avicii Strott winning Champions Leagues and, and Premier, League, Premier League titles and cups and stuff um made him his own Twitter account to begin with then after a while I thought um I'd like to raise some money for Calm, which we'd already been doing because my dad had found out about them after my brother passed away. And we just asked people to donate normally, but that was tend to be people that, that knew my brother or knew our family. So I thought, how can I, I think I probably had about uh, 5,000 or 6,000 followers on Twitter, maybe less when, when it happened. So I was like, how can I get the message out to these people and raise some money using these people? So I decided I'd make a, a testimonial program because of each had just retired. This on Football Manager 2013, you don't have actual testimonials, which you do now on, on Championship. Oh, sorry, on Football Manager on the later uh, versions of it. So I just decided if he was to retire, he'd have a he'd have a statue and he'd have a stand and maybe this whole stadium named after him. But he would definitely have had a testimonial. So what if I made these testimonial programs? Put little bits in there that you would see in a normal program. Put some adverts in there for people as well, and put one in for Calm, and then rate, sell them and raise money for Calm. And so we, so we made a hundred and I can't remember how many it was, sold them for five pounds each and made 600 pounds for Calm just by selling fake, well, not fake, fake for a uh, pretend testimonial programs for a fake player. Yeah, fictional, uh, for a fictional player for a match that never happened, which was going to happen in the future. So, and then sort of Calm found out who I was and then sort of we've, we've worked together a lot closer since then I've been very lucky to become an ambassador for them and I always used to say that um playing champ playing championship manager playing football manager um and raising money for for calm is a lot better than um and a lot easier than than running a marathon to raise money for charity but now now I've started running as well so um there's been no escape really so um yeah and it's just it's really good because 
football manager players, which are predominantly young men, um, I wish I hopefully can still include myself in that, but people like you, people that will be listening to this, they're predominantly young men and, and young men are also the most at risk um, sort of demographic to die by suicide as well. So it's good to bring those two people together and realize, you know, football manager can be a very solitary game. You can play by yourself um, a lot. Most of the time you're probably playing by yourself, even if you have a network game with people. You don't have to be in the same room as them. And then if you are in the same room as them, you've got the shield of a laptop in front of you or whatever. So it is very solitary. It's not like FIFA or something where you're sat next to your friend and, and stuff like that. And football manager players tend to take a lot more seriously, I think, in my experience, than two mates playing FIFA together. So um, it's good to sort of bring these people that might have quite a, not to dis dismiss them because I'm one myself but sometimes have a quite a solitary existence when they're gaming to learn that you know that if they do need to speak to somebody what options are available to them and what charities are available and the, the charities that are really focused on uh, young men sometimes with them being the most at risk of suicide so it's been really interesting way of raising money but it's also been a very unique way and that's why a lot of people especially in the beginning were very interested in, in talking about it and, and finding out about it because it is unusual people that run marathons and people that you know do a lot of the sponsored stuff probably should have um articles and stuff like that and a lot of focus and attention on them a lot of the time but because so many people do it it's hard to focus on them all whereas something like this is so abstract and weird and unique that it did cause a lot of attention at the time and we went and talked on the BBC about it and stuff like that so yeah it's been good and being an ambassador for Calm is probably my um proudest achievement even though it's not much of an achievement they just they just emailed me and asked me if I'd like to be one and I emailed back and said yeah um but it's uh, probably one of the things that I'm most proud of of doing and probably the part of my character and part of my life that um I'm most proud of so um as long as my girlfriend doesn't listen to this this is getting married next year and um, I might have to uh, change that um but yeah we've um yeah just an incredible thing to be a part of and they are an incredible charity and I think they're um they work incredibly hard um and if it's helped some people that might not have heard of them hear of them then it's been it's been an incredibly worthwhile thing to do I need to find more superlatives than incredibly. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's been uh, extremely worthwhile. Yeah, I think the work you do is amazing. Um, and I think like you said about James Acaster when he was talking about his own mental health through an, quite an accessible way through making jokes about it. Like you said, the main demographics who, who play football manager line up with uh, the highest suicide rates in the UK at least. Um, and I think you know, getting men to speak to people, speak to each other and speak to charities like Calm through what you did. I think it's amazing. Um, and so if you are struggling or even if you just want to check out the work Calm do, uh, their link will be in the description. Um, but going back to Avicii Strock, like you're in the, he's in the football museum in Manchester, isn't he? Um, he was, he was part of a temp temporary exhibit uh, that uh, sort of followed uh, football games over the years and how they've sort of become more interlinked with real life football um, 
and I don't think there's a better example of that than, than a Vichy struck sort of coming out of the game and, and coming into the real world. So his, his shirt that I had, uh, his Celtic shirt was in the football museum um, and his one of his testimonial programmes was in the museum and is now in their archives. So I don't know when it's ever going to be brought out again. Some historian in like 50 years is going to stumble on that and, and wonder what it was all about and hopefully... Um, They'll, they'll, they'll discover the weird and wonderful world of, of each struck as it was in 2015. Um, but yeah, it was just the, the exhibit. It was really weird. I went um, on the um, sort of opening night of it and Miles Jacobson uh, was there and he came to talk about uh, the work that, that Sports Interactive do and and how how much of the sort of scouting and stuff that they've done and ProZone stuff has now moved into the real world. And FIFA were there and they sort of the electronic arts, EA Sports were there to talk about FIFA. But then like looking at the exhibits that we sent for Avicii Strock and then turning around and like the motion capture suits that Lionel Messi had worn for the FIFA games were like right next to it. And it's like, this is really surreal that this stupid thing that I've done is right next to something that Lionel Messi has worn. And like downstairs, there was the shirt that um, Diego Maradona wore when uh, the Hand of God match. And it's like, they're housed in the same building. And if Avicii was real, this would make sense because he was one of like, the best striker in the world. But he's not real. And so he's in the same museum as a trophy that Pele's lifted and the shirt that Diego Maradona's worn and the, the motion capture suit that Lionel Messi's worn and a very very surreal moment um but again I keep saying to my keep talking to my dad about stuff and saying like oh different things well they make a good story don't they and I think the Avicii Strock one's definitely a good story to be able to tell people um so yeah it's uh yeah, just odd. Even thinking back now, I, hard to believe it actually ever happened. But yeah, very, very, very odd thing. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and I think Struck, he could get one more mention because um, we're going to end it on uh, a recurring segment where I ask my guest, uh, your dream five-a-side team. It could include yourself, players past or present, uh, pro footballers mates you grew up with mates you have now i'll even let you include uh football manager players i'll even let you include struck if you want so let me know uh your five-a-side team um so the probably probably the position that i struggle most with is probably goalkeeper uh and i'm still not sure now who i will pick i'll probably go for shay given um one because he's the best goalkeeper that i've ever seen at newcastle and that's very slim pickings um and he was he is i think he would probably be quite a good five-a-side goalkeeper because he's quite short for a goalkeeper so he could get down quite agile quite good at shot stopping um can't leave his area anyway um, and he did like to stay on his line quite a lot um but yeah so i think i'll probably put him in goal and also he's um I once took a penalty against him and he saved it, which I'm still annoyed by. So it wasn't the best penalty. Um, and uh, my girlfriend finds it really funny because as soon as he saved the penalty, I started walking up to him and asking if I could have a photograph with him, which he kindly obliged to. Uh, so no hard feelings with Shea Given. So he'd probably be my goalkeeper. And um, then I probably have Philippe Albert, um, who is 
almost made for five aside as a defender because he loved taking in a, in a time that it was very unfashionable, especially in this country, to bring the ball out of defence. You obviously see it a lot more now. Uh, Virgil Van Dijk's an expert at it. Even Harry Maguire's pretty good at it. Um, like bringing the ball out of defence and, and spraying passes and stuff and getting yourself forward. Philippe Albert was doing that in the mid nineties. Um, for Newcastle and for Belgium, and he scored um, my favourite goal ever, which was against Manchester United when Newcastle beat them five 0 in nineteen ninety six, and he scored the, the fifth, the chip, the chip over Peter Schmeichel, one of yeah, many what... chips that have gone over Peter Schmeichel. Now that I'd I'd almost compare to Burkamp because not in terms that it was a, a fluke or that he didn't mean it, but in terms that I take a lot of the credit away from that goal due to Schmeichel's positioning. I don't really know what he was doing. So my only thought about this is that one you wouldn't expect as good as, as Philippe Albert would score a few times a season and get himself forward quite a lot. But I guess in I think the only thing I can ever think of is that he was expecting the through ball into Les Ferdinand, who was on the shoulder of the last man, and he was coming out ready to sweep at, at uh, Ferdinand's feet. That's the only thing I can ever think of that he was he was trying to do because he was a long way off his line and there was no need for him to be off that line because he's back four and a couple of, I think maybe Nicky Butt or, or Roy Keane, Ronnie Onsen was there as well from midfield. So there's absolutely no need for him to be that far unless he was expecting that through ball that he would then come and come out of off his line and sweep up. And he wanted to be in the best position to do that because um, Ferdinand was pretty quick and pretty sharp as it was. So, but I think he's perfect for five aside because he can bring the ball out and he can, he can tackle as well. Uh, midfield, not that you have a midfield in 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 five aside, but uh, but I've had the uh, pro- well, I was going to say the only non Newcastle player that I have uh, would probably be Zidane. I think he's the best. I don't well, he's not the best player I can remember because I think Messi and uh, Ronaldo have taken that sort of mantle up to a, a whole other place because of they are just outrageously good consistent but Zidane was Zidane was more messy than he was Ronaldo because there was and it's it's such a cliche uh, but we started uh, this podcast off by talking about Adam Hurry so I may as well use one um, but is uh, like watching him when he was at his best was was like watching a piece of art or like watching a film or, or it was poetry or, or whatever you want to say he just seemed to always be in acres of space. His touch was incredible and he always meant his touch as well. Um, and then uh, he was just, he scored amazing goals. He was there on a the big occasion, scored two goals in a World Cup final, scored in a, the best goal. Oh, Gareth Bales against Liverpool was really good as well, but one of the best ever goals in a Champions League final. I watched him play uh, in a, a soccer aid about 12 years ago and he played up up front and he uh, did not like staying on side. He would stand off side for as long as possible and then just sort of slowly work his way back on side. But he was, he was still then a class above almost everyone else on the pitch. And to say that there was other internationals on the pitch at the time, he was just incredible. So he'd be in there and then up as my strikers, I would have Alan Shearer, because he's the Premier League's greatest ever striker. Uh, 260 goals plus 20-something others in the old first division. Um, 
plus two years out where he was long-term injured and, and couldn't really score that many. So I think if he'd stayed fully fit, he would have got over 300 uh, goals, definitely in the top flight, if not the Premier League alone. Um, so I'd pick him because he's my hero, uh, the greatest footballer to have ever played for Newcastle. Um, and I wax lyrical about him all day, but he might put a restraining order on me and, and he follows me on Twitter and I don't want to lose it, lose that follow. Um, so, uh, and then next to him up front, I would have, um, with with apologies to uh, Avicii, he can be on the subs bench, he can come off. I would put uh, myself, because it's going to be my only way I'll probably ever meet Alan Shearer uh, to get to play five or seven with him. Um, and... I've played at St. James's Park and I've scored a goal at St. James's Park. So better record than Alan Shearer's got, arguably 100% goal scoring record at uh, mm. St. James's Park, uh, not to be sniffed at. So yeah, I'd um, not particularly good. I don't really like five aside. Uh, it's the worst form of football. There's It doesn't go out for a corner, doesn't go out for a throw in. You get pushed against the jet. Uh, cage you can't go in the area the goalkeeper can't come out the area the goals are too small um you have to one step penalty which is ridiculous um so there's there's many reasons not to like five aside uh it's not proper football uh seven aside is probably my favorite the pitches are smaller the goals i think are still smaller but you get your throw-ins you get your your corners you get people goalkeepers allowed to come out of their area um then six aside and then 11 aside, and then five aside, some way behind. So, um, but if it was the opportunity to play with Shearer, Zidane, uh, Albert, and Given, then I'd probably take it on the chin. <laughs> Wouldn't mm. argue too much, and I'd, I'd just go and go and get on with it. Yeah, mate, that's a that's a quality team. What a way, what a way to end the podcast. Um, but yeah, Johnny, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your day to do this. Um, it's been so much fun I actually can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it uh so thank you very much hope you enjoyed I did thank you very much for having me on and letting me waffle at you for for an extended period of time um and um, the most impressive thing is and obviously this is a visual very visual thing um three different cats have come in this room and none of them have come on camera so that's quite that's probably the most impressive um thing most unusual thing about this I'm disappointed. So, uh, I want. I wanted to see your cats. I saw. I saw one walk in, and you oh, carry on talking expertly. But um, one but was yeah. one was th- one was thrown in rather than came in of his own accord. Oh. I think two of two of them might have been um fighting downstairs, so they had to be separated. And one was brought up to um save him. But yeah, if he was white and fluffy, he's named after Rude Van Nistelrooy, which is the most uh, annoying thing about what well, is arguably my favorite of the three cats. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thanks again. Um, I wish you, your cats, your fiance, and the wedding. Uh, the wedding goes well. I wish you all the best, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for listening. Uh, if you've made it this far, uh, rate it, follow it, all that good stuff. Uh, I'll link Johnny's Twitter. Not that he needs any more followers, but uh, I'll link his Twitter. I'll link the Calm Zone uh, in the description. I'll link the podcast Twitter. Uh, my Twitter and the podcast email down below as well. Uh, But until then, uh, stay safe and take care. Ciao.